Uh, let's get going tonight. I want to I get started on what is the next and um, maybe the final. I, I, I don't know this for sure, and I don't want to say that it's the last lesson from our series on the church, but I also don't have another one like on deck. Um, that's odd. I usually kind of have the stop sign in front of me. I don't with this one, so I don't want to say because I don't know what the Spirit's going to do this week and maybe coming out of this weekend. Maybe there'll be something else. So I feel like though we are approaching the end, and the reason for that is not because there's not a lot we can't say about the church or shouldn't say about the church. I think we've covered a lot of ground. But one of the reasons why I feel like we're near the end is that when you look at the narrative of the book of Acts, we're mostly finished with the story of the corporate church. After the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, the story starts to shift gears slowly at first and then just ramrods into the story of Paul all the way to the end of the book. So almost 50% of the book of Acts follows Paul's missionary journey and Paul's message, Paul's conflict. Now we can pick a lot of stuff out of the Pauline journey. It's why I don't want to put the stoplight up just yet because there are some things to learn about the church, even if you just looked at Paul's journey, which is one of the things we're going to do tonight. Um, but my whole intent with this thing was to try and take a look at a corporate church as it shows up in the book of Acts. And what did that corporate church do? The fact that the corporate church story sort of runs to a halt and then the Pauline story runs off could lead us to a couple thoughts. Um, I don't want to go down the road too far, but I would say that I think that one of the reasons why the story shifts to, to follow the Apostle Paul is not just because Paul's the because Luke is Paul's friend and he's the narrator, but I truly believe the Holy Spirit follows the story of the Apostle Paul. Um, or maybe we could even say Paul follows the story of the Holy Spirit and his is the story that gets told. We don't know everything. We don't have, the book of Acts doesn't follow Peter from Acts 15. When he leaves the council, we don't go follow him through the cities and see what he does. It doesn't follow James. We don't go follow him through cities to see what he does or Philip. Uh, or John. We get some of their letters as the New Testament unfolds, but we walk, we, we walk lockstep with the Apostle Paul with his journey with Mark, his journey with Silas, his journey with Barnabas, his journey by himself. The Holy Spirit just keeps following his story. And naysayers will say it's because Paul controls the narrative. I say it's because he has, fall, he has stepped into the flow of the river of God's love and the Holy Spirit is following his story. And if that be the case, then we will have some things to learn about the church by following Paul. But we also, if we're really serious about Paul, and this isn't sort of some journey into the mind or the thought process of the Apostle Paul, but if we are serious about following him, then we're going to run into some conflicts, of course, with Paul and the way that he teaches and some of the things that he sort of doubles down on and some of his writings. I don't know how far we'll go with that, but I do tonight want to put up a lesson on the warning and the inheritance. And I want to take this from Acts 20, where Paul has called a council of the Ephesian elders together. There's really a three point, this is really a three point lesson, even though the subtitle has only two points. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Paul's going to declare the whole council of God in this, in this meeting. And in that council, he is going to give a warning to the church at Ephesus, and he's going to give knowledge of the inheritance of the church at Ephesus. So what I want to really focus on tonight is trying to land on those three spots. And I want to show that the church in its early iteration received a warning. They were already being warned, first generation. How much warning should we have 2,000 years later? They were already being warned, but they were already being told about their inheritance. And so I think those two, those two things should still stand in the church. We should still receive warning and we should still look at our inheritance and what it is that we have. And so um, before we read 
the text, this is your context. Paul has come from Miletus to Ephesus and decided that he wants to call a meeting of the Ephesian elders. The elders are those who are in charge of trying to help the Ephesian church to grow. They're trying to help the Ephesian church to be established. They're really trying to take care of the day-to-day operations. This is possibly, most likely, a church that Paul founded. Back in Acts 19, Paul baptized most of these people. You'll remember this story. Have you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. Oh, well, then how were you baptized? Oh, we were baptized through the message John preaches. Oh, well, let me introduce you to Jesus. You remember that story. Out of that grows a church. And Paul then calls together the leadership to have what has to be considered the first pastor's conference in the history of the Christian church. And it occurs in Acts 20. And so if we could learn nothing else about the early church, even if this is the stoplight night, if this is where we stop these, these lessons, and I don't know that it is, but even if it is, this is a pretty good place to stop where the first ever council, the first ever conference of pastors assembled be, happens. What would Paul say to them? Maybe it's the same thing Paul would say to us. And that's worth examining. Let's read a few verses. From Acts chapter 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. 18. And that, that's basically the intro I just gave you. When they come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the way, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. We notice that Paul emphasizes that I always lived among you. I don't want to make too much inference from silence, but the fact that Paul throws that in tells me that there might have been some trying to lead the church that didn't live amongst the people. And I don't think that goes too well with Paul's theology. If you're going to build something, you live among it. You don't live away from it and then come in. And so when Paul wanted to get his hands dirty, wanted to build a church, he got his hands dirty. And when he wanted to be a part of people's lives, he was a part of people's lives. And he seems to brag about it, that he lived among them, serving the Lord with humility, tears, trials. And the tears and trials are just what he accepts is what it, is what it takes. He never questions God through tears and trials. He doesn't assume that because he has tears and trials, he's not doing something right. He doesn't assume because he has tears and trials, God's abandoned him. And one of the things we've got to get rid of in Christianity is this idea that if I have tears and trials, I've done something wrong. God's not on my side anymore. I'm supposed to change paths. I must not be going, I must not have the right job. I must not be going to the right school. I must not be living in the right town. If I were, things would be going well. That's superstition. That's the way the world acts. If stuff were going great, then I know I'm in God's will. That's wrong. That's, uh, Paul would not have agreed with you. So he goes, I had, I've had fears. I've had, I've had problems. But I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I've lived amongst you. Tears and trials. That stuff just happens. That's all part of the experience. Verse 20, he says, How I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Testifying to Jews, also testifying to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward Jesus. I want to lock in on 21 in a moment, but there's a phrase in 20 that really jumped at me today as I was finalizing this thought. I've had a lot of things that I've wrestled with in the gospel over the course of 29 years of ministry. It'll be be 30 years of ministry next year. Um, And a lot of times I've put stuff out too quickly. Like I'd wrestle with something, get an idea, concept, and I'd get up and preach it. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was really excited about it. And I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of problems doing that because I didn't know, I didn't have a lot of basis for it. It was just an exciting idea. I've also, though, held stuff back. 
And sometimes I've held it back a long time because I was afraid of what it would do to my ministry if I released it. Now, I do want you to know that I think there's wisdom and sometimes you got to keep your mouth shut about things you know because you're not supposed to give all your information out. When God gives you something, it doesn't mean you recycle it immediately. Right? You don't, he, he speaks to you in your prayer closet, you go out immediately, put out a podcast, go out immediately, write a book, go out immediately, shoot a video. No, that gets you in a lot of problems. But there are some things you can't set on forever. Okay. And that, that kind of jumped out at me. He goes, I held nothing back, which would help you. And so God, that, what, how it must've been to be Paul and to hear the things he's hearing in his spirit and to know it's going to get you in trouble, to know it's going to get you ostracized and know it's going to get you cut off. It's probably going to get you killed. And he goes, I'm not going to hold it back. It's too good. I've seen Jesus. This is too real. Now I believe in all of you and I believe that you will share what it is that you know would bring life to someone else. But I also know us, I know us as human beings and there's going to be things that are going to be difficult for us to release. Because in releasing them, um, we might cut ourselves off from people who, who only know us where we were. And one of the things that has been troublesome for me in the last 15 years of digital ministry is that a lot of people think they know you because they heard you preach 10 years ago. And they think that you are on the same page with them. And then they aren't following what the Lord has been speaking to you for the last two years, three years, four years, five years, what you've been speaking. And I have found this look of just disappointment in people when they start to sort of catch up to where you are. And that can be very difficult. One of my great failures as a minister is that I for too long have put too much stock in trying to hold on to people who were in my ministry past who were very important to my journey at that time, but I, won't, I don't want to hurt them by letting them know that I don't agree with, their, with where I was then. And so sometimes I've skirted around even talking about it because I'm like, well, I'd rather keep them as a friend than cut them off because they're going to hate me if they know what I believe about that now. And I do believe there's some wisdom in that. And I don't know who, this is obviously probably for someone who's watching this and maybe they're in ministry, maybe they're a pastor, maybe they're trying to figure out how to move on from those past relationships or to develop better ones. Um, I can't tell you how to do that or when you're supposed to do that or what that looks like, but I do know that there comes a time when you have to decide that you can't keep anything back if it's gonna be helpful. And if that costs you the old relationships you have, then you gotta let go of those old relationships. That's, that's sort of that thing about um, a man's life consists of more than the, the things he possesses, and that's the stuff he can get his hands on. So you, you, can't hold on to, you can't hold on to the past, but you also can't hold on to past relationships if you are at a place where that relationship's no longer fruitful for you spiritually. And so let go of those things. This is why you're not going to be friends with the people you're friends with at 10 when you're 20. A couple of them you will. And then you're not going to be friends at 30 with the people you were at 20. A couple of them you will. And that number will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then new people will enter into that journey because you're not who you used to be. And that's okay. Um, but be sensitive to the sound of the Spirit and how to release the things people need. Be sure you're releasing it because people need it and not because you want to be right. And that's key. And that's something that takes spiritually walking this out and maturity to know the difference in. Because sometimes we want to tell people what we know because we want them to know we know it. And that's not enough motivation to remove grave clothes. I just want these people to know how smart I am. I want these people to know I study. 
I want these people to know I'm close to God. And then we throw stuff in. And that actually is a little bit like tossing a grenade in the middle of the room because you're not doing it with love. You're doing it hoping you knock a few people out. And so we don't see that in Paul here, although I think Paul probably struggled with that. And I think that because when you, when you are the smartest guy in the room, and Paul was the smartest guy in most rooms he entered, sometimes it's hard not to let people know it. And I think Paul probably faced that a lot. And it was probably, it's very possible it was a thorn in his flesh. I do think the thorn in his flesh was not physical. I do think it had more to do with what we would call psychological. Uh, and a struggle that ensued, maybe burned somewhere deep inside of them. So whatever that first line means to you, fine. But that's what it said to me today is there's going to be some things, son, you can't hold back. Once they become needful, you got to release them. And you got to take whatever comes with that. And you got, if, that's, if there's a little bit of suffering that comes with that, then you'll suffer. But you'll be okay. I proclaimed it to you. I taught you publicly. I did it from house to house. So I did it both publicly and house to house. This takes away the idea that maybe I just did some things in private because I was afraid I'd get in trouble if I did them publicly. He goes, no, if it was needful, I preached it in public. And then I elaborated on it in private, which also, by the way, is a pretty good way to do ministry. Whatever you proclaim in public, be ready to elaborate on in private. Extrapolate it out in Q&A, in questions and response, one-on-one, face-to-face. Because, by the way, don't ever throw anything out that you aren't ready to extrapolate a little bit. <laughs> That's something I learned the hard way. And so at that, that, it always goes from, public, from publicly to house to house. That's how Paul did it. But here's the, big, the biggie to me is verse 21. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks. So this is the two sides, the, both those who are in Israel and those who are outside. Two things, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in 21, but I want to skip ahead to 27. And here's why. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. There's some filler in between there. and You can read that on your own, but for purposes of tonight... I want you to see, go back one screen, Brian. I want you to see what I think Paul considers the whole council. What did he preach? Two basic messages. Repentance towards God. There's one, two. Faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, faith. Both toward, not from. This is actually the Greek word eis, E-I-S. It's, it's a preposition. Sometimes into, sometimes for. Remember when Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world? And I've told you before, it's the Greek preposition ice. He could have said into judgment. I came into this world and maybe he should have. Same preposition here. So repentance into God, repentance to God, repentance towards God, faith into Christ, faith toward Christ, faith to Christ, all the same. But it's a toward motion. So my salvation, my, the, the gospel is asking me for a response toward. All right. That, Always. The gospel is always asking me for a response towards. God's saying to me, here's good news. What are you going to do with it? The objective is the good news. God stands above us with the objective gospel. The subjective is what I do with it. It's subject to my response. And so being subject to my response is I go, I towards God with repentance. I go towards Christ with my faith. That's two sides of this, possibly the same coin. What's the coin? 27. Next verse. Whole counsel. That's the coin. The coin is the whole counsel of God. And the Greek word there for counsel is close to what we would use for the word advice that's given in accordance to someone's will. Uh, So it kind of sounds like this. Paul says, both to the Jew and to the Greek, I've given you God's advice. And God's advice is repent towards God, have faith towards Jesus. I like the fact that that's the whole thing. What's God's advice? It's twofold. No Ten Commandments. 
No Jewish law. No feast days. No moralisms. No necessary things. No little list you take to the Galatian church from Acts 15. When, it, when Paul gets to do it his way, because remember what we said about necessary things? You write that list up and you hand it to Paul and Paul has to go out and go, hey, you're not supposed to do this and this and this. And then I told you, I think he spends a lot of his ministry going, eh, I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. Now Paul gets a chance to do it his way. He goes, okay, let me tell you what I preach to you. I don't give to you, don't get circumcised, don't, don't worry about the law, uh, don't eat meats offered to idols, don't eat things strangled, don't eat things with blood, don't commit fornication. No, 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 no. I got two things for you. Repent towards God, faith towards Jesus. That's the whole thing. How bold is it to say that's the whole thing? I mean, he didn't mention eschatology. He didn't talk about water baptism. He didn't mention the gifts of the Spirit. He didn't talk about how to grow a church. He didn't give any worship seminars. All it was was twofold, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Repent towards God, faith towards Jesus. I think we're making this way too hard, by the way. I think we've made meeting the Father way too difficult, and I think we've made salvation way too difficult. We've got all these rules and these stuff and all these questions we've got to answer, and Paul went, hey, the whole council's two things. Repent, we know that's a mind change. Faith towards Christ. So, something's got to happen up here, and something's got to happen in here. That's Paul's, that's Paul's gospel. That's the whole counsel of God. Now, I don't mean he doesn't talk about other things. My God, he writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Of course he talks about other things. But in his pastor's conference, he goes, listen, I didn't hold anything back from you. I gave you that whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God is twofold. Repent towards God, faith towards Jesus. This is an easy thing to remember. It's not a laundry list of stuff. I honestly think it's the core of the gospel in regarding, regarding what you tell people when they want to know what it means to follow Jesus. This is Paul's idea. Paul goes, well, first of all, change your mind about God. That's what repentance means. And then have faith towards Jesus Christ. So let's start with the first one. Mind change regarding God. The reason I say mind change, just in case you don't know, and I know you do, but there might be somebody watching who doesn't. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Metanoia means to change your mind. So when you see the Bible use the word repent, it means change your mind. It doesn't mean fall on the carpet and make promises to God. Because that's how a lot of us heard repentance. Some of you people need to repent. What we meant by that was scream, cry, beg God, fall on a carpet. Hopefully he'll forgive you. No, repent is change your mind. Mind change regarding God is the very first thing in the whole counsel of God. Mind change regarding... This is what the church of Ephesians... I'm sorry, the, the Ephesian church of Acts 20. This is what they were taught. So... First century church was learning this. Maybe we need to go back to learning this. I, I think the church of America would do really well to go back to these two things exclusively for a while. In fact, let me say this. If the American church would give this an experiment for the rest of the calendar year, no politics, no flags, no programs, no formulas, just teach two things back and forth every week. Do as much of it as you can. Repent towards God, faith towards Jesus. Repent towards God, faith towards... I can't even put into words what I think would happen in the American church. I don't even have words for what would happen. That's the re Everybody clamoring for revival? That's the revival the church needs. A revival of the whole counsel of God. To where it went back to, let's change our mind about God. You could spend weeks on bad mindsets. You think this about God, but the Bible says this about God. We could spend weeks on that. We could spend weeks on faith towards Christ. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus handle himself? This shouldn't even be something we got to talk about. Like, like oh, that's, that's asking a lot to go back to do that. 
That should be the baseline for who we are. Repenting towards God, faith towards Christ. So let's start with mind change. And we're not going to reinvent the wheel here. You know, what it, you know what God's like. And I don't have to go through 70 scriptures with this room on fixing your ideas about God. Because quite frankly, I don't think you have any bad ideas about God. But just to sum it up, God doesn't abandon you. God doesn't hurt you. God doesn't work against you. These are simple. But that right there would be mind-blowing on Sunday morning in about half the churches I've been in. To just start right there. That God's not going to leave you or forsake you. God's not walking out on you. God's not building a great gulf between you and Him. God's not running away when you sin. God's not hiding. God's not up there with His hand out waiting for you to fill it with coins. God's not waiting on your prayers of incense so that He can move. He's not running away. He's not hurting you. He's not working against you. And then a simple belief. That's so simple to me. So simple to you. But it's so hard for some of us to get. Just believe that God is good. Believe that God is light. Believe that there is no evil in Him. And believe that God is love. This isn't hard. God is incapable of evil. God is incapable of darkness. If it's evil, it ain't God. If it's good, it's God. This should be the baseline. You know what? We teach this to kids in the church. And then we get into adult church and we start doing deeper things. But when we go, when you let the kids go to Sunday school or go to children's church, we try to teach them that, you know, God is great. God is good. And then when we get to talking about God, well, there's a lot of deeper stuff. Yeah, he's good, but he's, but he's sovereign. And he's doing all of this because he's God and we don't know his ways. And I, I think we need a revival of understanding that first part of that whole counsel of God. Let me just give you a couple verses to prove. And this is, this is right at the end of the canon, by the way. This is definitely one of the later books. 1 John 1 and 5, and you still need to be saying this. This is the message we heard from him and we declare it to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the message we heard from God and the message we declared. We did a whole series on 1 John. But maybe you can put it in context now why this is so important. This is the message that we heard from him and we declare to you, God is light and there's no darkness. If it's light, it's God. If it's dark, it's not. If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's not God. Pretty simple. God's not the creator of evil. We'll do evil on our, on our own. We don't have to have God to provide evil to, or, or to give evil. How about this one? 1 John 4, 8. A little deeper into the book. He who does not love doesn't know God. Why? Because God's love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. You don't love, you don't know God. Why? Because God is love. The Bible never says God is hate. The Bible never says God is anger. But God is love. What emotion is God? Love. And so in that, repent towards God. Here's the other one. Faith toward Jesus is believing but Jesus is the expression of God's love for us. I thought about this today. What, how in one sentence would you say faith, faith in Jesus? Is it faith in following Jesus' teachings? Is it faith in the cross? Is it faith in the finished work? Faith in the resurrection? I don't, all of those things. Sure. Great. Yes. So let's try. What's one way I would say it? Faith towards Jesus is believing that Jesus is the expression of the love of God. That when you look at Jesus, you're seeing what God thinks of you. And this is why the less you look at Jesus, the more confused you are about what God thinks of you. So look at Jesus. 
the author. This is why Hebrews goes, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Why are we looking at Jesus? Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the only thing. We, he's why we're saved. So as I look at Jesus, I start to see my faith. And John said it this way. We'll go back to 1 John 4. Look at this. 1 John 4, 14. We have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. He is in God. That's where God lives. And we've known and we've believed the love that God has for us. God is love. He abides in love, abides in God. God abides in him. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. There's faith. That's how I come up with that sentence. We have known and believed the love that he has for us. So what's believe is faith. What is my faith? I believe God loves me. So someone says, well, how's your faith? A lot of times what we think is, do I believe God will do stuff? Right? So, well, how's your faith? Oh, I don't know if God will do it. No, 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 no. I didn't ask you if you think God will do it. Listen, that's roller coaster stuff. One day you think God will do it. Next day you don't think God will do it. How's your faith? Because in reality, your faith is believing that God loves you. Do you believe God loves you? I'm doing okay with that. Good. Good. Wherever you lack in that, change your mind about God. Start there. Repent towards God. Faith towards Jesus Christ. All right? That's the whole counsel of God. That's the first point of this message. And I thought it might even need to be its own sermon. And I think if I was in a different atmosphere, it would be. Because there's places you could walk in and go, hey, you know what I want to do here today? I want to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Go, well, that's going to be a long sermon. No, it's two points. <laughs> repent towards God, faith towards Jesus. Let's talk about those two things. And if you're here today and you think, I don't need to repent, well, good news, this message is for you. Because I got a feeling there's going to be some things you need to change your mind about God. So <laughs> repent towards God, faith towards Jesus. By the way, you do need to repent. I don't even know what you're thinking of, but I promise you, there's some stuff in your mind you need to repent of. You need to change your mind about God. And you need to change your mind about His love. Because it's all getting pressed by the stuff of this world. And it's getting pressed by the good old filing cabinets of wisdom and knowledge that you have up here. And you're making these images of God. Repent from time to time. Repent daily, in fact. Make that a part of your prayer. That shouldn't be a bad part of your prayer. Father, Father, I repent today. There's been, there's, I, don't, I don't think I've framed you right today. I don't think I've even listened to you today. I've had on my mind a couple, for a couple days the message we did here Sunday night about the Father's love. And I spent a few minutes here this evening. I got here early. You know, you're playing on your phone, reading a book, whatever. And I thought, what am I doing? This is, mo this is a moment where you can just talk to the Father. Because you don't have to play on your phone. You don't have to talk. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to do something. You just sit here and talk to the Father out loud if you need to. So I did. And I found myself getting distracted. I'm, I'm very Martha. I'm distracted with much ministry. I'm always trying to do something new. You're trying to organize something. Trying to fix something. Trying to write something. Trying to think about something. Trying to wrestle out something. Got to look up scripture. Got to Two minutes. I literally made it two minutes and started to do something else and heard the Holy Spirit go, repent. Why don't you change your mind about it? I don't need you to do anything. I don't need you to, I don't need your activity. You don't have to be cumbered about with much ministry or whatever it is you think is ministry, which a lot of times isn't even ministry. It's just activity or keeping yourself busy. But choose the more needful thing once in a while, Paul. Just sit here. Just sit here and shut up. Don't even say anything. Just listen and let me talk. And I got some stuff I want to say to you. And I think if we'll do that, 
will realize that repentance is part of our process. Go, I can change my mind about you. You didn't need me to do stuff. I think you need me to do stuff. I'm over here doing stuff. I changed my mind about my father. All right. Next couple. This actually gets us to our title because we've got a warning and we've got an inheritance. Paul says, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Here's the next verse. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You do know that this is an allegory, that you are not an actual sheep, and that there are not actual wolves coming in. And so the Bible, the literature of the Hebrews has always been allegorical, always been metaphoric. And so it's what Paul's using because they're going to recognize it. They're not looking for real wolves. But we're going to get into the spirit, uh, the, the, why this is important spiritually. 30-31, let's read this out. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I, I want to talk about the sheep and I want to talk about the wolves. And I want to then move into the inheritance. Let's start with sheep. Shepherds smell like sheep. The reason they smell like sheep is because they're with the sheep. And when you're with sheep long enough, you start smelling like sheep. A shepherd that doesn't smell like sheep isn't much of a shepherd. I wouldn't trust a pastor that doesn't smell like the people. And you know I'm talking allegorically. So if he doesn't have an idea about what his people are going through, the lot he or she the lives they lead, the issues they have, they can't get their hands dirty, cry with them, weep with them, laugh with them. It's probably not the flock you want to be a part of because the day's going to come. You're going to need a shepherd that knows what you feel like and that knows how to hug you and hold you and, and tell you what you need to hear. And that's impossible to do if you're one of the sheep that's way over on the hill and no one talks to you. And so this is community and this is what it's all about. And, and that's to me, I, at the end of the day, at the end of this series, this all comes down to we're sheep and we smell like it and we act like it and we accept that of one another. And that's what the church is about. Um, I think the church is actually a place where people ought to be so real that the stench of what they are is just the common part of the smell of, of the flock of God, you know? Like, we're not in here trying to clean people up. We're just in here loving people where they are. And the church is not a place where we try to make people better. The church is a place where we accept people in all their failures. And we show them that there is hope in the man Christ Jesus. It's not hope because I counsel you. It's not hope because I give you advice. It's hope because I show you that you're loved. There's hope. If you don't change, you're welcome to eat at this table. This is what we ought to be saying to our sheep. If you don't change, you're welcome to eat at this table. All I do is introduce you to the bread. You get to eat it. You get to enjoy it. You get to receive the love of God. If it changes you, be honest and change with it. Don't lie. Bring who you really are to God, all your stench, all your sheepiness, all your ignorance, because sheep are not a flattering animal. No self-defense mechanism. They are, they are an easy prey. They have to have a leader. Um, there's, there's a lot of reasons why people aren't happy that Jesus chose to compare us to sheep. There's also a lot of reasons why we would rather Jesus be the lion than the lamb. And he, he never calls us a bunch of lions. He calls us a bunch of sheep. 
and he is one of us. And so the shepherd will always smell like the sheep because they spend time with sheep, they care for the sheep, they cultivate the sheep. They actually promote the sheep over the shepherd. Paul instructed the Ephesian elders to shepherd those who had been purchased with his own blood, his, of course, being Christ. There is no need to draw blood from the sheep. A price has been paid. This struck me as I was, I'd never seen this before, why Paul would bother to say, hey, take care of the sheep. God bought them with his own blood. Because I think it's Paul's way of saying there's nothing you need to exact from them. God bought them with his own blood. You don't go shed their blood. Blood's already been shed for them. And so it's not our job to extract anything from people. We are just to love people. People are not a commodity. We are not stacking as many of them up as we can get so that it somehow validates us. The church is not constructed of, uh, on the backs of the sheep. The church is the sheep. The church are the sheep. And this is Paul's instruction for the fact that you are to shepherd them. Here comes the warning. Wolves consume sheep. For the wolf, it's all about the wolf. It's never about the sheep. The wolf thinks of the wolf. Paul warns that they will come from outside and from within. And this seems to speak of attacks outside the church. We would expect that. We would expect it from outside the church. What we don't expect, and he spends more time on because we don't expect it, are attacks that come from inside the church. And those from within will be from those who, will, Paul says this, they're going to draw disciples after themselves. If you draw a disciple after yourself, you have to be drawing that disciple away from Christ. And so the first telltale sign of the wolf, and this phenomenon still exists, by the way, where the leader becomes a stand-in for Christ, where he becomes the savior of you. He becomes that which or that church or that place becomes that which is your salvation and can easily be mistaken for the representative of God. And we, we get this in the denominational world. We get this in the non-denominational world. We get it in what we call the mixture church, what we call the grace church, in, in, in so many different iterations in which we're pulling people after ourselves. I'm reminded of the men that came to Jesus I'm sorry, they came to Philip in the Gospels. They said, sir, we would see Jesus. I'm reminded of that because the Holy Spirit has reminded me of that a thousand times in 30 years. What you're doing here today is to try to present Jesus. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Don't sell Paul White. Don't sell what you can do. Sell Jesus and get out of the way. And pitch Jesus and get out of the way. Do that for your loved one. Pitch Jesus and get out of the way. Don't be their savior. You can't be. You can't be your best friend's savior. You can't be your boyfriend's, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife's savior. You aren't their savior. You don't fix people. You don't save people. The minute you start trying, you become, I know this is harsh, I know, but I don't know any better way to say this. The minute you start trying to save them, you become wolfish. Because you start to pull disciples to your own way of thinking. You can't save people. Because in trying to do it, you will consume them. You will consume that part of them that was supposed to be dependent on their shepherd. Instead, it will become dependent on you. And in that, you become a wolf. Are these literal wolves? No. They start out as disciples who start to pull people into discipling themselves. And so I've been a wolf and I didn't know it. I've been a wolf because I, I took 
the center. I, I took the center place to where people could go, oh, Paul's got the answer for that. Whatever he says, that's what I'll do. And that kind of scratches your pride a little bit. Your ego feels better, like you're getting something done, you're figuring something out, you've become this answer for people. And it's us kind of pulling the wolf mask down over. And we're not, I don't even think we're, I'm working on this as I go. I don't even think necessarily that our heart's in the wrong place a lot of times when we're wolves. Wolves. I think that we actually think that we are doing something for the kingdom, but we've really just displaced Christ as their savior and have stepped into that mold to go, well, I got to be a shoulder for them to cry on until we become the whole shoulder they lean on, not just the shoulder they occasionally cry on, but that thing that props them up. And it can become a position of power where you feel better about yourself, you feel good about yourself, feel like, well, this is what God's called me to do. And there's not a, I, I don't think there's a handful of wolves in the world <laughs> that don't think that this is what God's called them to do. And what's happened is that we've started to eat the sheep consume what they are to prop up what we could be. And it's rare that the wolf knows it's a wolf in this illustration. It's rare that they go, yeah, I'm going to fleece these fools. They exist. I I think they do. I I think there are people that go, I'm going to fleece these ignorant so-called Christians. But I think a lot of us end up being a bit wolfish from time to time. Otherwise, what's the use of the warning? The warning, if all Paul said was watch out, wolves are coming, then the warning to the church would be stay on guard. But he didn't. He said the wolves are going to come from among you. So what's the warning? Don't be the wolf. 2,000 years later, we need to hear this. Don't be the wolf. Don't be the one that consumes people's hopes and dreams and their loves and their passions. Don't be someone's mini Jesus. It doesn't fit you well. You didn't die on the cross and resurrect from the dead. You cannot be the object of their faith. You cannot set them free. When you try, your fangs grow. Because you really consume the blood a little bit. Their life, the life of the flesh is in the blood. You consume a little bit of that life. You start to take that upon yourself. And here's the inheritance. Verse 32, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now then, interestingly, Paul seems to shift gears. I want to read it out, and then I think we'll be able to see why he seems to shift gears. Let's read that again. Look at that middle part. He's able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Seems like an odd turn. He's going, you guys are going to get yourself an inheritance, but I didn't ask for your money. It's odd. Is it the word inheritance that triggers Paul to start talking about money? Or have we misinterpreted a little bit about what Paul's talking about with inheritance? Let's see if we read out if anything changes. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands are provided for my necessities, for those who are with me. In other words, I worked for my own good with my own hands. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Um, Two interesting things here. One, Paul is giving you the absolute command of the church. Go, go back there real quick. The command of the church. Um, next screen. Here we go. Right here in the middle. You must support the weak. 
He doesn't say, do it if you can. Try to make this an ancillary part of the church. You guys pray about it. Start a side fund if you can support the week. Doing goes on. You got to support the week. This is your job. Listen, Ephesian elders. You got to support the week. Okay, so that's one. Number two, and this was just sort of a fun little piece of knowledge that you might want back. Sorry. One more. Jesus, uh, remember the words of our Lord Jesus. That he says, more blessed is given. This is the only time in all of Paul that he quotes Jesus. Isn't that weird? Direct quote of Jesus at one time. And it's not even in his own writing. Um, other than repeating things he heard Jesus say to him, which he does in the road to Damascus testimony. And he does in 1 Corinthians, the Lord appeared and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Okay. Part of that is that Paul didn't have the gospels, by the way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not in print when Paul was preaching. So it's not like he could open his Bible and go, oh, you know, Mark 3 says. So this is interesting that this is the moment where he quotes Jesus. I want to land on this thought. Paul does not simply spiritualize the inheritance. That spiritual inheritance does exist. Here it is. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of dying. How do we get the new covenant? Jesus died. When Jesus died, we get the new covenant. For the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of, there it is, eternal inheritance. Boom. How long does your inheritance last? Eternally. You receive eternal inheritance, not temporary inheritance, not inheritance you can lose. That's the spiritual side. Go back to Acts 20.35. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Next. Our inheritance also manifests within community. This is what I think Paul's talking about. The inheritance that the church has manifests inside the church. We help provide for each other and we quote unquote support the weak. And we look for opportunities to give, not only opportunities to receive. And that's our inheritance. Our inheritance is that we get what each other has. I don't mean we hand each other all of our money. They experimented with that. But our inheritance is that I have a family that takes care of me. And I have a family that I'm responsible for. And my inheritance is whatever is in this room. We belong to one another. As John Dunn said, no man is an island apart by himself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. We, uh, we are diminished when you are gone. We are diminished when you hurt. We are diminished when you are diminished. That's the body. We are happy when you're happy. We laugh when you laugh. That's our inheritance. And that is not just this room. That is every place that you identify with those who call on the name of the Lord. And our inheritance is, is a glorious connection. Whole counsel of God, change your mind about God, faith towards Jesus. Watch out for the wolves. A bunch of them are going to happen from within. So keep an eye on it. Finally, this is your inheritance. Guard it. Treat it like it matters. That's what you would do with an inheritance. Take care of it. If this is our final spot, and I'm not sure it is, but if this is our final spot, there's worse places to stop than church. You are part of the inheritance that has been promised through the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray tonight. Let's pray whatever we need to, wherever we need to repent, repent, okay? Wherever we need a new revelation of Jesus, let's pray a new revelation of Jesus. That's faith in Christ. Wherever we're becoming the wolf, mm. let's have him show us. And wherever we need to know more of our inheritance. This isn't just something you pray at the end of this sermon. This is something you can take, take with you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this tonight, very succinctly. About as clear as I think Paul ever wrote anything. I got to change my mind about you. You are good. You only think good for me. You only love. I repent of where I've made you something else. I have faith towards Jesus, not just what Jesus said, but who Jesus is, what Jesus did. May I pay more attention to Jesus. Teach me to walk in his ways and live as he lived. But most importantly, teach me to die as he died. To lay down who I was so that I can be who you would have me to be. That's faith in your son. Father, guard me from the wolf that is outside. But most importantly, guard me from the wolf that is me. Where I consume the sheep around me. For my own ego, for my own joy. Because I think I'm doing the will of God. May I guard against that taste of self that is the blood of the sheep. You've already paid for them in blood. No blood needs to be shed. And Father, thank you for my inheritance. Everyone that's in this room is part of the inheritance that I get to be a part of. I get to share in their life and I get to share with them. It is more blessed for me to give to them than it is for me to receive from them. Thank you for that. Teach us this in Jesus' name. Amen.